I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. From the Gospel according to St. Matthew, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? This question placed before the apostles is at the heart of the gospel. The Christian must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It is not sufficient to say, well, my parents believed. It is not enough to say, my wife believes, or my husband believes, or my brother or my boss believes. This question is put before every Christian that they may give an answer. Indeed, the most ancient of Christian creeds is simply this. Jesus Christ is Lord. Any opinion contrary to that is simply that, an opinion. Some variation of this phrase, by the way, appears 43 times in the New Testament. It is to say first that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one of God, the Messiah, God with us. Second, it is to say that He is Lord of all, high above all. I feel the need to emphasize this today. All earthly authorities. In the first century, to confess Jesus as Lord was, not so, was a not-so-subtle act of treason. As N.T. Wright has continually said, if Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is not. The Romans cast currency in those days with the words, Caesar is Lord, inscribed upon them, those little coins. Ancient Christians understood the words of Jesus, render unto Caesar, to mean simply to give back the denarius bearing his name. That all other authority belongs to Jesus Christ. It is a testimony of Paul that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Indeed, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are poured out upon the church so that this proclamation go, may go forward in power, not the paltry power of human beings, but in the power of God. For everyone who comes to believe, it is the same as it was for Peter on that day in Caesarea Philippi. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. What I read from C.S. Lewis last week hits the nail on the head that Christianity does not tell of a human search for God at all, but something done by God for, to, and about man. He continues, and the way in which it is done is selective, undemocratic, to the highest degree. After the knowledge of God had been universally lost or obscured, one man from the whole earth, Abraham, is picked out. He is separated, miserably enough, we may suppose, from his natural surroundings, sent into a strange country, and made the ancestor of a nation who are to carry the knowledge of the true God. The universal, as I said last week, subsists in the particular, in the peculiar. Here the confession of the apostles becomes, by means of multiplication, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the confession of many tongues, my tongue, your tongue. When I read that of all the apostles, of all the people on earth, Peter alone makes, his, makes this confession. 
my first thought is to be stunned. Actually, I say, when I read this, my first thought is to be stunned by how exclusive it all is. How thoroughly strange that only one mouth out of many should confess this truth. But we must see today how it is that Jesus looks back to the apostles, looks back to the Old Testament to reveal what is going on in this confession. He looks back not to the apostles, but to the prophets, to the Old Testament to reveal what is going on in this confession. And we read from Isaiah today as the lectionary has us do, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you, for he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. The prophet, by the interior testimony of the Holy Spirit, proclaims to the people that if they would seek righteousness, and I hope that you came here on this morning to do that very thing, to seek the righteousness of God. I mean, maybe you thought, maybe Father Nelson will preach a good sermon this morning. That would be nice. Or maybe you thought, maybe the music will be exceptionally good, and it always is, so you know that. I hope you came here seeking the righteousness of God. The prophet says that if they are to seek that righteousness, they must look to the rock from which they were hewn. They must look to the quarry from which they were dug. They must look to Abraham the father of faith, and Sarah his wife. One person when he was called, but blessed and multiplied through the ages and against all odds. For many years, I visited the monks of New Clairvaux in Vina, California. I would go and stay three, four, five days at a time. And the monks had come from that famous abbey, Gethsemane, in Kentucky to build a new monastery. They had originally set out to be cattle farmers, but found it to be way too taxing on their energies, so they decided to become nut farmers instead. You know, California literally is the land of fruits and nuts. So they were nut farmers. Many years ago, the mayor of San Francisco called the abbot with an interesting proposal. In the Great Depression, William Randolph Hearst had bought the ruins of a Benedictine monastery in Ovila, Spain, for $97,000, and he had had them shipped to San Francisco to be incorporated into his Northern California residence, his Northern Palace, as he called it. But before this could be done, Hearst was bankrupted, and the stones were abandoned in Golden Gate Park. The proposal of the mayor was simply knowing nothing. It was a rather naive idea, but somehow worked. was to say, well, who do they really belong to? And it's too bad that we can't just, you know, and then he thought, well, there are these Benedictine monks up in Vina, maybe they'd like them. And so it was his idea to just simply give them to the monks. And the abbot was reluctant at first, but finally, after some cajoling, he agreed to take them. And this began a painstaking process of rebuilding that chapter house on the grounds of this new monastery. But not all the stones were there. Many had been severely damaged. Many a uh, druidic festival had happened in Golden Gate Park on top of those stones and a good many other things. It is San Francisco after all. But what they found was that not all limestone is the same. Not any old limestone would do in cutting new stones for that 
building. In fact, if limestone from different quarries are used in the same structure, they will deteriorate each other. And so a search was initiated to identify the quarry from which these 800-year-old stones were dug. In fact, the whole quarry in Spain had to be reopened to dig out new stones. I think of that in reading this passage from Isaiah. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you are hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Isaiah knows this truth and knows it well, that the structure will certainly fall if stones from another quarry are added. In like manner, the Jewish people must look back to Abraham if they are to be faithful and multiply. You and I must look back to the testament of the apostles if we are to be faithful and multiply. You can, of course, see where this is going. For Jesus to say to Peter, on this rock I will build my church, carries the meaning that all those who pursue righteousness will be joined to this rock in this confession. Every Christian confesses the faith not only as evidence of the power of the Holy Spirit, but as a multiplication of this singular confession. This is to say that that truly the specific, the particular, and the peculiar becomes universal through God's work of multiplication. At this point, I must correct some confusion on this subject. Many of you are nervous about this message as we even launch into it. Oh Lord, Father Nelson's become a Roman Catholic. First, the debate between Protestants and Catholics has often been characterized as a debate as to whether the rock is Peter's confession or Peter himself followed by his many successors. Both sides are to be rebuked for their inattention to Holy Scripture. Roman Catholics must be reminded that the power to bind and loose is not only given to Peter, but to all of the apostles. The church is founded upon the testimony of the apostles. The church becomes the bulwark of the truth by this apostolic work. And the apostolic faith is not delivered to one man or to one generation and to them alone, but to the whole communion of saints, as a sacred deposit. It's given as much to you and me as it was to them. Those on the other side of this debate are to be corrected by simply saying that their fears of one unique authority endowed with pastoral authority over the whole church are unfounded. For centuries, Christians were united in looking, at least partly, to the Bishop of Rome not only for for doctrinal orthodoxy, but for pastoral guidance. We Anglicans in our documents and indeed from the, from the uh, dialogue with Roman Catholics, have agreed on this point. Anglicans have said that what, we do, that what we do not oppose is this idea of a universal pastoral ministry being offered. What we oppose is this universal jurisdiction in every church, which is a late development to be sure. What we oppose is this idea that the Pope can speak infallibly on matters outside of the apostolic faith, and for the very reasons which I've outlined already. And if you're wondering about this, I would simply ask, what Christian is there that would not benefit from reading some of these writings from John Paul II or Benedict XVI? There is a wealth there. The wealth belongs to us because we are Christians too. We need not agree with Roman supremacy in order to see that. What I simply want to say here is that it is the will of God that there be a certain unity in the apostolic witness. We were all cut from one witness, from one testimony. 
and we should act like it. Paul later would not treat disunity in the apostolic witness with apathy. For him, it mattered that the apostles gave witness with one voice. It matters today just as much, and we should be cheered that we find high degrees of agreement. When we find disagreement, we should pray all the more earnestly that we might agree. As a Catholic Christian, I neither celebrate nor regret the Reformation. I want you to hear that from me. I neither celebrate it nor regret it. What I pray for is unity within the communion of saints that we would all, with one voice, proclaim the truth of the gospel that Jesus Christ is Lord, just as Peter first said it. A common witness in, in church, a common witness in the church of Jesus Christ as Lord means the power to take down the gates of hell, power to assault the spiritual forces of wickedness and to prevail. Remember that for Jesus to say the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church clearly marks out that we Christians are on offense and not on defense. We must not defend the faith at the expense of proclaiming it. We must not become deluded into thinking that it is only a matter of time after all before the church slowly but inevitably slides into decay and destruction. Told and told often in North America today is this idea that we are just slowly, 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 but surely declining into nothingness. In fact, I would just say to you this morning, we've believed what the nihilists have said about us. And we need to cut it out. Our victory as the church is assured. Our prevailing is a promise of the Lord. Beloved, my desire this morning is not only to assure you of this victory for Christ's church, but to say something about how it will be achieved. Yes, by God's grace and help, but also very much by our cooperation with the Holy Spirit and His work. The first thing that I want to say is that to see oneself as hewn from the rock of Peter's confession, and indeed from Peter himself, is to see, one, to see oneself as very much under that apostolic authority. This cuts straight to the heart of how we Anglicans think theologically. We read Scripture not attentive to our own sense or de novo, but attentive to the church's historic readings and consensual teachings. We read Scripture attentive to all of those things so that we might be truly members of one united witness. We, as many have said, look to the early fathers to interpret the apostolic witness. Faithfulness does not consist in these novel and creative readings of Holy Scripture, but in those which are universal, time-tested, and common to all Christians. The idea currently in vogue among many is that in order for the church to prevail, she must depart from her confessions or depart from her doctrine and discipline. And that is simply to say this, that we believe that the power does not belong to God, but to us. That is false. No. The confession of Jesus Christ the Lord was multiplied through many centuries from Peter to us. We must see ourselves in continuity with the apostles, in continuity with that undivided church. This is the particular witness of Anglicanism during this time. And it is lamentable that many who claim to be Anglican brazenly oppose this witness. 
if I can put this succinctly, it does not matter what others say about us. It does not matter what others say about the faith. It matters what we say. It matters what we say to this question. Who do you say that I am? And as the Catechism says, I love this, all authentic Christianity is apostolic Christianity. We cannot have it both ways. The second thing to say is that the gospel confession of Jesus Christ as both Christ and Lord is not to be closely held as some kind of private confession, held under the shirt, held somewhere hidden. I loved that wonderful movie, Silence, that came out a few years ago, but there was a detail which was woefully wrong. In the end, the priest is shown to be holding on to a cross held in the grip of his hand. It's not in the book. It's only in the movie. And in the end, he, in his lifeless, dead body, reveals this private faith. It is almost to say that there's something good about a private Christian faith, something holy about a private Christian faith. And none of that is true. All truth is, for the Christian, public truth, meant to be publicly confessed. Paul says in the Acts of the Apostles, these things were not done in a corner. The matters of Christian believing are not matters of private revelation, but public, to Peter, then to the twelve, and then to the many. The Christian must live convinced that the gospel is a pearl of great price passed on to me as one untimely born that I must pass on as well. I must say that part of the hesitance with which we view evangelism in our day is rooted in a belief that what I am passing along is my own prerogative, my private interpretation of the gospel, not the confession which all Christians share. It is too great a burden for one Christian to share. It is not our invention which saves, not our personal property that saves, not our own prerogative which saves. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ which saves. If we are convinced that the apostolic faith is handed down to us, that we might hand it down to others, we will do so. We will understand that what we received without price, we must pass along whole and undefiled without price. What we receive by the power of the Holy Spirit we will give to others by the same Spirit. Lastly, I want to say something of a personal nature this morning. Believe it or not, and many of you uh, have no awareness of this, but it has been five years to the day since we launched Christ Church. It is a massive anniversary. On that day in the Hoffman Banana Building, which is now a part of Live Oak, like everything in that neighborhood is becoming, I said this, and I want to say it again to all of you. Some of you were not there. In fact, the majority of you were not there. But it's a message which still needs to be proclaimed. It says something about the heart of our witness as a parish in keeping with what I've already said. I hope you'll forgive the length of this quoting of myself. I don't mean it that way. Ours is a vision of no longer being content with no longer being resigned to a church that is anemic. Anemic in theology, anemic in teaching, anemic in worship. 
The vision is for a robust engagement with hearts, minds, and souls, reaching those on the verge of disaffiliation from the church as well as those who have never known her teaching. Those who are done with the anemia of the lowest common denominator and those who desire strong catechesis and teaching, spiritual direction within a community of prayer, and the joys of living in a church that seeks to upbuild her members in love. We have no gimmicks, no tricks up our sleeves, no latest and greatest method of reaching new people. We have the gospel, we have the sacraments, and we have this, that we do simply what the church does. We are a disciple-making church. We don't plant this church so that someday we can host beautiful weddings for our sons and daughters, as nice as that might someday be. That's hilarious, isn't it? Quite fun. We plant this church to be the beautiful bride of Christ, about the work of teaching, baptizing, and converting. I've told you many times before, I dream of a day when people will say, Christ Church is the most beautiful church in town, and they won't be talking about a building. The Lord has seen fit to do this and more. We desire to see a day when every Easter vigil brings many to the font, whole families being baptized, men and women brought to conversion and newfound faith, the whole church regularly reaffirming her commitment to Christ and flourishing in maturity. And I might say to all of you, well done. And thanks be to God for this wonderful gift the Lord has been so gracious to us, so gracious to me and my family, so faithful and so abundantly kind in doing what we, by our own power, could not do. May the Lord, who is all-giving and all-loving and all-powerful, continue to aid us with His grace as we assault the gates of hell. May he hold us steadfast in the confession of one faith in Jesus Christ our Lord, and may he bring us to make a powerful and enduring witness to his kingdom. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.